Today is the fourth Sunday of Advent, the fourth Sunday of this period of waiting and preparation for the coming of the, uh, of the birth of Jesus, as is uh, commonly recognized. And it's the last Sunday before Christmas. The story of Jesus' birth to a young virgin lady named Mary is, is, is pretty well known. Uh, but there are some aspects of that birth and the announcement of the angels that are a bit puzzling. Uh, David read from chapter 2 in one of those angelic pronouncements, but this comes from chapter 1. When the, an angel, <clears throat> when the angel announces to Mary that she'll be pregnant and will have a son, the angel tells her that her son will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High God. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants and family forever. His kingdom will never end. The throne of his father, David, I thought Joseph was his father. Or then God was his father, but then how is David his father? And Jesus had a throne? When he was living and ministering, he didn't even have a house let alone a, 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 a palace and let alone a throne. So how is he going to be sitting on his throne? Well, our text today comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, and it will give some background and some clarity to some of these puzzling type announcements that we've read uh, throughout Scripture about the coming of Jesus. Many Old Testament scholars believe that Second Samuel chapter 7 is perhaps the most important chapter in all of the Old Testament and especially in understanding and making the transition to the New Testament. In Israelite thinking, this chapter was kind of like a constitutional text. It expressed an ideology and it later became a document through which Israel would define itself as a nation, as a people, and also as a religion. Uh, it has been compared, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 has been compared to the Magna Carta or the Declaration of Independence, uh, a, a text and a document that helps forge an identity for an entire people. And that's the importance of this text for the Jewish nation, but it's also extremely important for us as we think about Christ's coming and as we think about him coming in this next coming week. The text starts off talking about something that David wants to do for the Lord. David is at a particular uh, spot in his life where now he's enjoying a little bit of rest. His wars are over, his battles are done, he's no longer on the run, and now he's enjoying some time. Uh, chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 3 read, when King David was settled in his palace, the word in Hebrew is house, was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king summoned Nathan the prophet. This is the first time Nathan appears in the biblical text. Look, said David, I am living in a beautiful cedar house or palace, but the ark of the covenant, the ark of God is out there in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Go ahead and do whatever you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. In this moment of 
prosperity and this moment of reflection, David wants to do something for God. He thinks about his home and his house, and he thinks about how God's house is just a tent. And he wants to do something for God. And he calls the prophet. Now, this is the first time Nathan has entered into the picture. And it almost sounds like Nathan is assuming since David is king, that he has God's blessing, so whatever the king wants to do should be good. And so Nathan gives him his blessing as well. We'll see, and within a few short chapters, that Nathan will be able to stand up to David and point out that not all that David does as king is a good thing. But for now, Nathan says, go for it. Knock yourself out. And so David has the idea of making a temple for God. Verse 7 continues the story, but that same night the Lord appears in a vision to Nathan and says, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord has declared. Are you the one to build a house for me to live in? I have never lived in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt to this very day. I have always moved from one place to another with a tent and a tabernacle as my dwelling. You know, no matter where I've gone with the Israelites, I've never once complained to Israel's tribal leaders, the shepherds of my people Israel. I've never asked them, why haven't you built me a beautiful cedar house? And so God gives this message through Nathan to David. I never asked for a house. I'm actually pretty happy with a tent. It gives me the mobility and the freedom and the ability to be with my people wherever they are through all of their wilderness wanderings. And it seems that God valued that mobility and that flexibility. It allowed him to go where the people were. When Jesus comes, he follows that same example. Once he moved out of his mom's house, he never had a house for himself. He moved wherever the spirit and wherever God led him. Now, this chapter and the scriptures that we're reading do a little word play with the, with the word house. And it, it, it's in Hebrew, but it also works for, for us in English as well. Um, the word house is Beth, B-E-T or B-E-T-H. It's in Bethlehem and Bethel. And so the word house can mean a house, just like a normal house that we would think of. It can refer to the palace, the house of cedar that David's living into, living in. And it also can refer to the house where God would live, like a temple. And, and so God is saying, I don't really need a temple. I don't need a physical house. I'm perfectly happy in a tent. And not only do I not want David to do this for me, 
actually, I'm going to do something for him. Verse 8 and following read, Now go and say to my servant David, This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. David, I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on the earth. And I will provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they've done in the past, starting from the time I appointed judges to rule my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you. (laughs) David isn't going to make a house for God. God is going to make a house for David. And I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod as any father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time and your throne will be secure forever. So Nathan went back to David and told him everything the Lord had said in this vision. Quite a twist. Rather than David building a house for God. God is going to build a house for David. What, what David, what, what God is actually talking about here is a dynasty. And he is making a covenant. He is making a, a pact w- with David. Now we've read different covenants in the Old Testament, the covenant between God and Noah and the covenant between God and Abraham and with Moses. And, and, and you'll remember all of those had all kinds of stipulations. If you do this and then this is what you will receive. If you do that, then this is what you'll receive. And this covenant reads very, very differently. It reads very, very differently. There are some similarities like Abraham. God is going to make David's name great. But this dynasty is going to last forever. Now, some of the promises that God made in this chapter uh, were fulfilled by his physical, David's physical son, Solomon. Solomon was the one who did build a temple. And God chose to inhabit it, but we never get the idea that that's really his choice. Much like he allowed the people of Israel to have a king, wasn't his first option. If you could put one word in your margin in your Bible about this covenant that God is making with David, it's the word irrevocable. It won't die. No matter what happens, God will always be with David and his people. God will not turn his back. God will not abandon. And it's a radical statement about who God is. God is a God who will be with his people to the end. 
three specific uh, um, promises or aspects of this promise. Things that ruin promises for us. Death, sin, and time. This promise will not be negated by David's death. David will die, but the promise will live on. In many families, after there are no more male children to carry on the family name, that name ceases to exist. We don't have more people with that family name. With David's case, regardless of how many in his line die, his destiny, his house is going to endure forever. Secondly, and perhaps most strikingly, sin will not cause this covenant to end. Sin will bring about God's discipline, but it will not destroy the covenant. Sin had the power to destroy the covenant in the past, but now God will make allotment and allowance for sin. You know, if, if, when we, if we were to talk and I were to ask you, what you think your next sin would be, you would probably say, well, I'm not planning on sinning. And we would all have the desire to never sin again. God knows us a little bit better than we know ourselves, and he knows that we're not going to hold out. But that sin will not cause God to cut off that relationship of love. It will not destroy the bond of father-son that there is. You know, there's a big difference between motherhood and marriage. You can stop being a wife, but you don't stop being a mother. In today's world, a mom or a father can unson their child But it's not what God expects. And so that bond of father, son. And it's interesting that it doesn't say father and father, daughter. And in our world, we feel like maybe it should. But just a little insight into that. In ancient times, for better or for worse, in ancient times, the daughters didn't really get included in the inheritance. It was the sons. So the sons would get the inheritance and then the daughters were kind of just there, but left out. When the scriptures declare that now we are all sons, what that means is all of us, daughters included, receive the full inheritance. We're not treated as if we're less or second-class citizens Every single one receives fully the inheritance that the child would deserve. So neither death nor sin or the third is time. I, I read that someone found a time capsule in their uh, yard not too long ago. And it was from the 50s. And you think back to what that family was thinking about. But time has a way of destroying our promises and our dreams. No matter how much time passes, forever is repeated throughout this text. And this promise 
that God is giving David will last forever. So no matter what death, sin, or time will do, they will never frustrate the plan of God to work through David to bring about his kingdom. And so when Jesus is identified as the son of David, that puts him squarely in David's lineage and in his heritage. And that means that he is the next in line after all of these promises to carry on the fulfillment. And so now we see that that promise is being fulfilled in a new house, in a different kind of house, in the church. We are all, as children of God, the heirs of Abraham. We are the true Israel. We are part of that kingdom that God is bringing into fruition under that one descendant, David. David, living in his house, his palace, wants to build a house, a temple for God. And God counters with a better deal. Let me give you a house. A house of people. A permanent and lasting people. The New Testament picks up this image in uh, 1 Peter. Where it says that we as Christians are individually living stones that have been built into a spiritual house. Jesus talks about going and preparing a place for us in God's house. And I don't know about you, but dynasty is not a word I'm very familiar with. The only thing, the only time I can ever remember hearing the word dynasty is when we think about either ancient Chinese dynasties or that TV show (laughs) from Dallas. But what I think this text is really talking about is home. Home. Where is it that God lives? And the promise is that God will always be at home with us. Ever since the garden, God has been seeking a way for us to return home. And home is where the heart is, we say. And I think in spiritual terms, home is where the Christian's home is where God's heart is. God chose to live in a tent so he could be close to his people. And he did so for those 40 years throughout the wilderness, and he did so wherever the people went. And, you know, it's striking and it's not a coincidence. This is very deliberate on God's part. In John chapter one, when it talks about Jesus leaving his heavenly home and coming down to earth, the word that's used is that Jesus came and lived in the tent of the human body. And so he was still living in a tent even while he walked and ministered and served his people. I I don't know if you and your family will be able to be home for Christmas. But please know that if God is with you, it doesn't matter what building you're in. It doesn't matter where you are. God 
is there. God is at home with you. And even as we're watching through this transmission, God is in your home. And he's in our homes. And so the building is a nice place for us to gather, but God doesn't need a building. He's perfectly happy hanging out (laughs) at your place. So our prayer for you is that you would enjoy and thinking about and reflecting on this wonderful passage, this wonderful time when God gives fruition and fulfillment to his promises that he will always be with us. He will never leave us. And with God, wherever we are, we're always at home. God bless you. Our brother Alfonso is here to walk through some prayer requests and to leave you with a blessing. God bless.